We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode 15 of Lion Legacy. And let's start off with a very special announcement, Ross. When we came together back in January to start this podcast, I think we always thought the podcast certainly had an alumni audience, but we also thought it would be great for students as well to hear the insights and experiences from Penn Staters both throughout their career, but also their time during the Penn State. So really happy for us to announce today that we are partnering with our good friends at the Daily Collegian. We'll actually have a segment in future episodes where we're going to let a student actually ask a question, submit a question to us through the Daily Collegian, which is going to be exciting. I think it's also a great opportunity for us to share Penn State news from the students' perspectives with our alumni audience as well. We all love to be connected with Penn State, and this is a great way to support students who are telling Penn State stories. And I know you recall picking up that Daily Collegian as well when you were at Penn State. And, and by the way, I am also very excited for this partnership. Daily Collegian is a huge part of Penn State. I think back to my daily routine as a student. Again, we're going to date ourselves a little bit here, Jared, but in our day, we would go walk into any building, the hub, the forum, the, I don't know, name your Willard, name your building. And there would be a bin of daily collegians there every morning. And you'd walk in and everybody that walks in the building would grab a copy, throw it in their backpack. You know, again, this is all before we had the internet in our pocket, so to speak. But that's how you would get your Penn State news. And you flip through it. I'd sit down if I had a break in between class and do the crossword puzzle. It's just it was nice. It was almost like a, a moment to relax among the studies and the classes and everything else. Also, my wife, Jessica, worked in the business division of the Daily Collegian for a little bit. And also, hey, we'll give a shout out to our also our friend, uh, Jen Facillo Greenspan. Another Penn State, that's where my wife, Jessica, met Jen, still a good friend of ours today, and the business division of the Collegian. And also, I would be curious for the uh, student listeners out there, I understand the print is not daily anymore, maybe it's a, a little bit less than daily, but I would be curious if the student listeners out there, do you go to the Collegian website every day for your news? Let us know how you're interacting with the Collegian. Drop us a line at roar at lionlegacypodcast.com. Awesome. More to come on that partnership. Looking forward to it again. But let's get into our guest this week, Gene Olwang, president and CEO of Virgin Unite, the entrepreneurial foundation of the Virgin Group and Sir Richard Branson. This was just an extraordinary conversation. I know you enjoyed it as well, Ross, with an extraordinary and well-accomplished woman. So inspiring, quite honestly. It, it, she's the type of person that after listening to her, you know, makes you really want to go out and be the change you want to see in this world. So I'm excited uh, for our listeners to to hear from Gene, but give us a little bit of a sneak peek. Yeah. I, and also to echo the comments, Jared, all of our guests to date have been very impressive and I'm not going to rank anybody. They're all doing great things in the world, but Gene just, she took it to another level. So we're very excited for this episode. And a few of the things that we learned 
first, Virgin Unite's mission, what are they all about, what they're doing, and some of the projects that Jean and her team have worked on recently. Again, super impressive. How doing good is good for business. We're going to get into that. And also her thoughts on getting more women into business leadership roles, very important topic. So she's going to give us some commentary as far as that goes. And without further ado, enjoy the episode with Gene Olang from Virgin Unite. All right, let's welcome Gene Olang, 1987 Penn State graduate in marketing. Gene is founding CEO and president of Virgin Unite, an entrepreneurial foundation that builds collectives incubates ideas, and reinvents systems for a better world. We'll certainly learn more about that as we dive into the conversation. Honestly, Ross, we can spend the entire show just reading about Jean's background. It's that impressive. But no matter what Jean has done or where she's gone, there's a deep belief in and lifetime obsession with the importance of partnerships and purpose to inspire a better world and better lives. She's also very generous with her time, not only coming on today's show, but she also has an advisory board role at numerous organizations, including the Sarah Blakely Foundation and the Penn State Smeal College Board of Visitors. Jean, among everything going on in your world, thanks for joining us today on Lion Legacy. Thank you so much, Jared Ross, for having me here. Anytime I can talk about Penn State, I am up for it. Excellent. We love it, Gene. Thanks for coming on. I think just to dive right in, everyone's likely to be familiar with Sir Richard Branson and the Virgin Corporation, particularly the airline and the mobile businesses. I particularly remember Virgin Records back in the day in the big store that, that used to be in the middle of Times Square in New York City. But then there's Virgin Unite, which was founded in the early 2000s. And we love the idea of the word unite because it plays an integral role in how you work and operate. Share a little bit about Virgin Unite's mission and the four Unite pillars. Yeah, thanks, Ross. I love that record store. We really miss it. So Unite is exactly what it says on the tin. We bring together extraordinary people, entrepreneurial ideas to really tackle and change unacceptable systems and unacceptable issues. And we are the not-for-profit foundation of the Branson family, as well as the Virgin Group. And we do all kinds of things. As you can imagine, as an entrepreneurial brand, entrepreneurial company, we start up the many companies in the portfolio. We also look at how we start these extraordinary collectives of leaders to change systems, whether that be change the way the world does business, look at how we tackle climate change, uh, look at how we, again, make sure we work towards a more peaceful world. And then we also back unbelievable frontline entrepreneurs, like one of them who's uh, just an extraordinary guy, is Raj Punjabi, who started this organization called Last Mile Health across the African continent. And we're working with him and Living Goods to put over 50,000 health workers across the continent right now. And we're also building an extraordinary community. We connect entrepreneurs with great frontline ideas, and we take them on experiences. So we have a community now of probably over 2,500 extraordinary entrepreneurs that want to make a difference in the world. And the last thing we do is we stand up against unacceptable issues. And we use Richard's voice. We use the voice of the brand. We use the voice of our networks. And uh, one example of that is last week, we just launched a campaign to end the death penalty. So we got a whole group of business leaders coming together globally to sign a declaration. Um, to stop the death penalty worldwide. Fantastic. You've touched on on some of the work there, but obviously 17 years, there's been so many initiatives, collaborations, partnerships. Is there one or two that maybe stand out for you? I know this has to be a, a really tough question. That is a super tough question because I have to say I feel so fortunate that every day 
I get out of bed and I absolutely love the work that I do. If I had to choose a couple that were really, I think, relevant to where the world's at right now, one would definitely be the B team. We thought that if we don't change the way we do business, that we're going to be perpetually facing all of the problems that we're currently facing. So we brought together an incredible group of 20 plus leaders right now, and they all work on how do we make business a force for good in the world? So how do we look at changing our businesses so they become net zero? How do we look at putting humanity at the core? How do we stop transparency and corruption? And I think one of the most beautiful things about this extraordinary group has just been watching them become these incredible friends because it's hard to change the way you do business. And they're almost like this extraordinary support group where they share ideas and they work together. I think the second one would definitely be the elders. And I can remember my first week of work at Virgin Night, moving from Australia to London. And I remember Richard Branson, who's my boss, uh, handed me this letter. And it was a letter addressed to him and to the extraordinary musician, Peter Gabriel. And they've been working on this idea about how do we get this group of global leaders together to really help stop conflict before it happens and also resolve conflict. And the letter was addressed to them and it was from Nelson Mandela. And I remember Richard handing me the letter and saying, here, you have to get this off the ground now. And I can remember in my mind just thinking, oh my God, I have just left Australia, an amazing job, amazing country, moved to London, and now I'm just working for a crazy man with a beard. And so I uh, picked my job off the floor and then we got this extraordinary group of partners together and fast forward 16 years later and the elders is a fantastic, extraordinary, independent group of leaders, about 12 leaders. It was started by Mandela and his wife, Grasa. And they work behind the scenes on conflict resolution and they collectively work together on peace, justice and human rights. So they tackle things like nuclear disarmament, ending child marriage, climate justice. And it's just an extraordinary group. And I think I feel so privileged to have been able to sit at their feet for the last 16 years and really learn from these great leaders. That's wonderful. Definitely a, a couple of great causes. And as Jared alluded to, there's so many more that are out there that, that you're supporting and there's so many more that you could support. So I guess we're curious, how do you focus and prioritize which efforts you, you put your, your time into? So Ross, if people could see me right now, they would see me smiling and having a little bit of a chuckle because I love that question. But as you can imagine, working for one of the world's biggest entrepreneurs in an entrepreneurial company, Flexibility and speed are, are big parts of our planning process. And I think we learned long ago that it really wasn't up to us to decide what we would focus on. It was up to the partners that we worked with. So we spend a lot of time going out and listening to frontline leaders, to our partners like the elders of the B team, to people in the companies. And then we step back and think about, okay, where can we have the most impact in the world? And then we work together with the family, the brand, the partners, and come up with this portfolio of what I guess I'd call an urgent patient portfolio. So we make sure we have those patient projects like the elders and the B team that are longer term systemic change that we know may take decades to actually shift and change something. But then we also make sure we have the urgent things so that we're able to react to an emergency. We're looking at how we're able to stop human suffering quickly if we see it. And also a large part of it is that we just go out and we look at things that are unbelievably unacceptable. And like an example of one thing we didn't necessarily, you know, a decade ago, we weren't necessarily focusing on criminal justice. 
And then we met this amazing lawyer called Brian Stevenson from EJI, who is out there fighting for human rights in our criminal justice system in the US. And Brian then introduced us to this extraordinary frontline leader called Anthony Ray Hinton. And Ray had um, literally been kidnapped off his lawn 34 years ago in Alabama, thrown in a jail cell on death row, five by eight foot cell. And he was held there for 30 years. Brian worked tirelessly every single day for 16 years to get him freed. And he was released about four years ago as a completely innocent man, completely fabricated evidence against him. And, and the beautiful thing about Ray is you meet this guy and he's the most extraordinary human being. He's like the Mandela of our time. And he's out there, rather than being bitter and angry, he forgave and he spends every day of his life right now ending the death penalty. And so there's people like that that we will see and issues like that that we'll see along the way that will pivot our plans sometimes. So the last 10 years, we integrated criminal justice reform in our portfolio. As you were telling the story, I there was a movie made about uh, yeah. Ray Hinton, and it just mercy is the was the movie that I guess was it was nice that that story was broadly told so people could see the injustice and hear about the injustice. So, well done. That was uh, love that story. Yeah, and the, Just Mercy is actually based on Brian Stevenson's book. And there's another movie actually coming out about Ray, too, that Oprah's working on called A Sun Does Shine. Extraordinary book. And, and again, just an extraordinary individual. Excellent. Amazing. Obviously, a topic now on, on everyone's mind, the pandemic. Curious how that's impacted you personally, but also Virgin Unite. And then I imagine you're also starting to think about some of these side effects to the pandemic on culture and societal issues that you may be able to help with in the foreseeable future. Yeah. And and again, to anyone that's listening that lost someone, uh, just our love goes out to you. It's been an extraordinary year. And when the pandemic first, first started, I, like probably everyone, we were scrambling around thinking about where we can make the most difference. And so a lot of the first part of last year, we just focused on how do we get relief to vulnerable communities around the world. And we started working with Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit and the amazing engineers there created oxygen hoods and ventilators that were low cost that could be manufactured quickly. So we worked with great foundations in South Africa to start getting them manufactured locally. We also worked a lot on mental health and working with partners like Shout and Crisis Text Line so that people had support, especially frontline healthcare workers in the early days. We also worked with Atlantic and got relief flights going. So the beginning was every day just thinking about where we could leverage all of our assets to make a difference. And then I look on what was a very dark year and there was some really bright sparks of hope I felt throughout the year. And one of them was we had the great opportunity to work with this extraordinary entrepreneur, Strive Masawia, who started one of Africa's biggest telecommunications companies called Egonet. And he did something extraordinary. Uh, when the pandemic first happened, he realized that all the African countries were going to struggle getting PPE equipment and testing equipment. So he built this amazing thing called the Africa Medical Supplies Platform and then negotiated prices across the continent. And whilst the rest of us were looking at like a city or town or state type of focus, he was looking at an entire continent on how he could give fair and free access. And then just watching him and the African Union and Cyril, um, President Cyril Ramaphosa and the Africa CDC has been this bright light of hope. And we've had the great honor 
of being able to work with the Africa CDC with a whole bunch of partners. So that was one big bright spot of seeing this, this scaled collaboration that was looking at collective interest rather than self-centered interests like so many other countries. And I think, I don't know if you guys found this, Ross and Jared, but one thing we found as a team is that what was universally missed in its absence was human connection. But I think we, we found that this kind of profound connection almost uh, didn't replace it, but emerged during the pandemic where people were more vulnerable. I know I was more vulnerable with my team. My team was more vulnerable with me. It just opened and cracked up this sense of humanity that uh, I hope will never go away in companies. I think it put human beings front and center of our organizations. And so I think that was another really beautiful thing that emerged during the pandemic. And I think will change the way the world does business going forward. I think companies will be much more focused on, on how they can be human, how they can put hum humanity at the core than they ever were before. So those were some of the sparks of hope that I think came out of a dark year. Couldn't agree more. It's funny how we can take these, as you mentioned, the sparks in from a dark time and and turn them into good. And I, I definitely agree with you that companies will have to change the way they operate in many ways, especially, specifically with what you mentioned. Gene, we want to dive a little bit further into your background. We mentioned the Virgin Mobile business and your background, I understand, is in the mobile business unit and starting companies in many countries. You were also the joint CEO of Virgin Mobile in Australia. You alluded to your time in Australia before founding Virgin Unite. Mobile was obviously in the early stages. It was hyper growth industry in the 90s, the early 2000s. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in the industry and you worked your way up to being the joint CEO of the Virgin Mobile unit. Yeah, Ross, I think I was super lucky because it actually all started at Penn State and at SMEAL. So I went to one of those job fairs that SMEAL put in place and interviewed with lots of different companies and got this fantastic opportunity in the GTE Associate Development Program. And so I joined GTE and as part of that job at GTE, I ended up landing in their mobile company, GTE MobileNet. And so that kind of kicked off my career. So I will forever be thankful to Penn State and to Smeal for giving me that opportunity. And then after that, I decided I was going to take a little pivot. And, and I remember everyone People at GTE, all my friends were like, don't do it. You're going to ruin your career. You have to stay on this path with telecommunications now. And I took the pivot and I became a Vista volunteer and landed in Center City, Chicago, working with homeless teenagers. And it was probably one of the most important life transformational experiences I've ever had in my life. And it got me totally obsessed with, A, how on earth are we allowing 17,000 teenagers to live homeless on the streets of Chicago at the time? But B, how do we change the way business, not-for-profit, and government work together to make those changes in society that don't allow that to happen? So I did that for a year, and then I was fortunate enough to get a job with Cable and Wireless in London. Um, and at the time, as you said, Ross, the mobile sector was going crazy. It was high growth. So we were bidding on licenses all over the world. So it was like this massive induction in, in global cultures and just landing in India, landing in Bulgaria and bidding for these licenses. And we ended up winning one in Bulgaria. And so I started a business with a partner and we went out and worked with an amazing team on the ground in Bulgaria to start up a new mobile phone company. And we were one of the first um, private companies in the country after the transition. And uh, just amazing experience being on the front end of starting businesses there in, in Bulgaria. 
And then we moved to other countries. We moved to Colombia, to South Africa, Singapore, but each place staying for a few years, helping build a team, helping build a company, and then moving on. And in Singapore, then I had the chance to go to Australia and to work with an extraordinary mobile phone company called Optus. And then again, I decided to take a detour. And again, everyone screamed, don't do it. You're going you're gonna to go off the career path. You're going to lose your opportunities. And I did it anyway, and I landed in the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife in Australia. And I did that for about a year, and I got a call from Virgin then saying, will you come help us start a mobile phone company in Australia? And, and so that, uh, that kicked off my career with, with Virgin then. Imagine if you had not veered in the direction you went when your colleagues told you not to. It would be a whole different path. <laughs> yeah, it would absolutely be a whole different path. Excellent. And so then after some time with Virgin, you founded Virgin Unite. And so tell us a little bit about how the idea came about. And maybe you can give us a little bit of insight as to what your early conversations were like with Sir Richard. Yeah. So I was in this job in Virgin Mobile, Australia, um, in heaven. What a company to, to be able to work for and a brand to be able to work for. But I always had this inkling in the back of my head that I would come back to that focus on how do you get not-for-profits government business to work in a radically different way. And so I happened to be sitting in the car with Richard one day when we were driving in Australia, we were briefing him, and I overheard him talking to someone on the phone saying, I really want to see how we can get the Virgin businesses to really scale. I'm thinking about starting up a foundation, so my light bulbs are going up. So then I quickly, rapidly pulled together a plan of what I thought the Virgin businesses could do to make a bigger difference in the world. And I sent that through to an incredible mentor who was on my board at the time, Gordon McCollum. And I also sent it through to Richard. And then I got a call like maybe a, two weeks later from Richard. I was at home. I was surprised. And he um, said, hey, I got your plan. I looked at it. So we talked about it for 15, 20 minutes. And then at the end of the half an hour, he said, let's do this. He said, pack your bags. I want you to move to London and we're going to start it. So I hung up the phone, literally danced around the house because this was my absolute dream job, and then hired in a replacement and then packed my bags and moved to London. That's fantastic. I love the speed, too. It seems like Sir Richard operates with immense speed and passion. Yeah, he's one of the most extraordinary entrepreneurs, but he's also one of the uh, most compassionate human beings I've ever met. He's so focused on, on driving change in the world. And so speed, and he tells you something and he expects that it's already done the next day. And, and so that's the kind of hyperspeed you're constantly working at, which is why he's been so successful. And he doesn't ever let, he doesn't ever let anything slow him down. And I think if you put a no or a barrier in his way, it's almost like a challenge to do something mm -hmm. even bigger and better than we were thinking of before. Well, the two of you were really ahead of your time, right? Because the conversation today, I feel like, is finally moving towards, in the C-suite that is, doing good is good for business. How are you guiding C-suite leaders today that are really trying to figure this out, something that you were working on 17 plus years ago? Yeah, and we all stand on the shoulders, too, of the folks that were even like the Ben and Jerry's, for example, that were the godfathers of this work. I am so excited right now to see this movement happening and picking up speed, and you can just see it everywhere around the world. I, I, I have the great honor of sitting on a board called Just Capital, and they've been polling American people on what they think a just company is. And you can see that the public is demanding now 
that companies change. And so if a CEO is looking to change, I'd say the first thing they need to do is listen. They need to really go out and they need to listen to their staff. They need to listen to their customers. They need to listen to their communities and they need to listen to their peers. This is not an easy journey. It's one that takes hard work, but the rewards are incredible. And I think the only companies that will survive in the long term are the ones that truly change themselves into being a force for good. And there's some real heroes that we can learn from. Paul Pullman, I think one of the most amazing things he did at Unilever is he went out, did this listening exercise, and then he created this incredible vision with the people that he listened to, which was a sustainable living plan. And he embedded it in his, across his whole organization. So I'd say as a next step, after you create that vision of what makes sense for your company, what makes sense for you as an individual, because I think that's the other mistake people make is they think they need to do something or they, and they quickly try to create something without really thinking of how it's going to be embedded in their company and how it makes sense for them. So I think after they go through that process, then making sure they get the basics right, something simple, or are all your employees on a living wage? Can they afford to pay the basics? Dan Shulman from PayPal has done some extraordinary work with living wage and also with fair benefits. And then secondly, thinking about how do you become net zero? How do you make sure that you're not damaging and extracting from the environment, but you're actually giving back? And then after you get those basics right, how do you step up and transform your whole industry? You know, the pharmaceutical industry right now is going, I know Ross, I think you spent some time in this industry. I think it's going through a really interesting transition right now about what does that look like for fair and free equitable vaccine access around the world? How do we get to universal health care? There's so many interesting opportunities for pharmaceutical industry right now. So I think a leader then taking that step and looking at how they change your industry and then I don't, I don't think the time is anymore that a leader can just step back and watch unacceptable issues happen in the world. But clearly what people are calling out for is for leaders to step up, for CEOs to step up and take a stand on issues and take a stand on issues that are unpopular and super hard. But I think as CEOs, what CEOs we all need to do is surround and give each other ground cover and be there to support each other to take those stands because it's unacceptable not to anymore. I love the movement. Hopefully this movement continues and, and gains more and more steam and we continue to see the change that we need in this world and that we're all part of that change as well. I also want to touch a little bit. I'm going to shift gears a little bit on your work leading the people strategy at Virgin. You know, the success of certainly of a company as large as Virgin has to be centered around the approach to people bringing on the best talent, fostering those relationships with employees, really not only at the beginning, but throughout their career journey. Can you talk a little bit about Virgin's approach to, to talent and people overall? Yeah, definitely. Virgin was built on people. I think one of the reasons why Richard's been so successful is that he's put his own people front and center and realized that if he takes care of his people, then they'll take care of the rest and the customers and the businesses. And I think a couple of things always stick in my mind as stories that kind of bring to life the Virgin way of being. I think that way of being is allowing people to bring their whole self to work, whoever you are. And I remember talking to a group of people directors and asking them, what makes Virgin so special? What makes Virgin a human culture? And I thought that they were going to talk about the policies that we put in place that allow for unlimited leave. And instead, they talked for hours about those human moments, like when, when Galactic, very sadly, had an accident, every single person across the Virgin company wrote letters to the staff members and to the 
family of the astronaut that we lost. And when we lost the Virgin train lines in London, again, all of the staff members from across the group stepped up for those employees in Virgin trains. And then one of the directors stepped back and said, that culture is ours to win or lose in every single interaction. It's the million moments, it's the million interactions you have with people every single day that are what creates a culture. And I think one of the things Virgin's really good at is empowering its people to drive change. And this is an old story, as you'll be able to tell, because it was before water was a weapon of mass destruction in the airports. And there was a little boy who brought to the front of a plane. He was just about to board a plane and he had this little plastic bag with a goldfish in it. And the air steward at the, at the front of the plane said, sorry, you, you can't bring that fish with you but we'll take good care of it. And this so little boy boarded the train, obviously very sad, and, and he was going to New York. And so the Virgin staff member then got on the phone with their colleague in New York and said, hey, I just had to take this little fish away with this water from this little boy. Can you please get one on the other side? So when the little boy got off the plane, there was a fish in a plastic bag ready for him on the other side. And obviously you couldn't do that today, with, with, but it's just a perfect story for me, this example of empowering your people to really go that extra step and really care. And we have been super, super lucky that we've been part of this group we call 100% Human at Work that we started with B-Team. And it's a group now of about 500 companies that are all experimenting on how they can make their workplaces more human. We've worked with the staff across those 500 companies to come up with five characteristics of what makes a human company. And they weren't necessarily things I expected. They were respect, equality, growth, belonging, and purpose. Because we had lots of long debates around, do we start with equality? And then people kept on bringing up that word respect as a basic in a company and making sure that you have that as the grounding. And I think Virgin really does that really well. They really respect people for who they are. Yeah, and I've flown on your airlines as well, and I see it. You feel it, right? You feel a difference there with when you interact with the employees. And you could sense they're caring for you, but also they're caring for each other, and then they're caring for the company overall. It's something I, I will say, you told a great story, and I've seen it play out in other different forms along the way as well. Yeah, you're right, Jared. And I think the other thing is we have a lot of fun. I I think we we look at joy as a as almost a tool for efficiency because the most of the stuff that happens where you really get to know people and you really get to build a relationship that's going to have meaning is in those moments of joy uh, or those moments of vulnerability. And so we encourage people to have fun at work, to to laugh together, to not take life too seriously. And I think. That's something that Richard is really embedded in, in Virgin as a company is we take the work super seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. We try and he, he has been really helpful. I've learned a lot for that because I think going through corporate America, the whole blue suit stockings, really serious corporate business. When I came from Virgin, it was something that I had to learn to let go of. I used to want to have everything PowerPoint, everything, all agendas tight, buttoned up. And Richard really taught me how to make sure that I left space in between for fun and stopped taking myself too seriously. 
It's certainly a good life lesson, right? In the workplace and just in general, don't take it too seriously. Gene, you touched upon a moment ago, equality. And so it's a good transition to my next question specific on gender equality. I'm going to reference an article that you penned for Business Insider back in 2012, which was a part of an editorial series debating, quote, why aren't there more women in positions of power? I'm so hoping you remember this article. I'm sure you do. So uh, the first sentence really struck me. It was when I was doing my research, I read this and it just, you know, you read something, it just sticks out. So I'm going to quote this. I believe that women haven't been assuming more leadership positions in the world today because the systems we've created often do not place the right value on the strengths that women can bring to the table. And here we are nine years later. And while our world has certainly improved by rightfully placing more women in leadership positions, and I say that very broadly in society and, and also in, in companies, we're nowhere near where I think we all think that we should be from an equality perspective. So ultimately, my question is, what are a few of the strengths that you mentioned in your in that quote that women possess that you feel are still undervalued by society today? Yeah, and I'll come to that in a minute. I can't miss this opportunity, though, to bring up two things that I think need to change for women in business. I think one is we need to change boards rapidly, because I think until... We have more diversity, whether it's it's women, it's all types of diversity on boards. We're going to be in the same position and we'll have the same conversation 10 years from now. So I think getting diversity into boards. I, I think the other thing, you know, I look back on much of my career and I was the only female sitting at the bulk of the leadership teams that I sat on. And I can't tell you the number of times that someone asked me to create a business plan on why there should be more women in the workforce. And I look back and I call out to any women that are listening to this, to, if anyone asks you that question, tell them that it's a ridiculous question and there's no way in hell you will create a business plan to justify your existence. So I think just to frame it in that context, because I think we still have a long way to go because I still get asked that question. And if I look back on that article, I think three things, if I remember correctly, that I focused on. And I, I guess I also want to frame it, I think the same way I framed it in the article is that I, I don't feel these are just female attributes. I think they're found in tons of men. I think what's happened is we've crushed the way we've structured capitalism. We've crushed the humanity in companies, which then led to crushing values like the three that I think I outlined in that article, which one was around just bringing humanity and vulnerability back into the workplace and stopping this whole focus on top down and looking at how we change our companies to also be more bottom up. You know, the whole world is shifting to be more bottom up. And I think we still have outdated, antiquated processes and procedures that cost us to be more top down. So I'd say that's still one that I would hold. The second one, which I think, again, was around openness and, and transparency. And I feel like openness, transparency, companies that are open and transparent are going to be the ones that, that win in the next decades to come. People are calling out for transparency. You know, one of my favorite companies is Buffer, who has a whole focus on defaulting to transparency in everything they do. It's an extraordinary example of transparency. And I think the other one, which is probably my favorite, which I'm completely obsessed with, is collaboration. And I think that we have underestimated the value of collaboration. I think we've trained people in, in everything we've done from the time we're in grade school. How can you win as an individual rather than how can you work as a collective in a collaboration? And this is something I've become so obsessed with that over the last 12 years, I went out and interviewed 60 partnerships and collectives of all types, romantic, business, friendships, 
to really understand what makes a great partnership work and how can you leverage your partnerships to make a bigger difference in the world. So we actually started up, a group of us started up a not-for-profit called Plus Wonder, um, and we're just in the process of finishing a book that's going to come out in early 2022 on how do we create these meaningful partnerships and connections in life. And I think that's something from a business perspective that we need to put front and center of how do we change our incentive structures to reward collective achievement rather than just individual achievement. Fantastic. Definitely going to pick up that book. You said 2022, right? Yeah, March 2022, March 8th, 2022, it comes out. Do you have a title? We're just uh, debating that right now. There's okay. Been a discussion. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone will have to pick it up when it comes out March 8th, 2022. Love it. If you're okay with it, I actually want to talk a little bit about a personal partnership with your husband, Chris Waddle. You two are certainly a true power couple and just some background uh, for the listeners on Chris. He's a Paralympic champion with many medals to his name in both the winter and summer Paralympics. He's also the first paraplegic to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Unbelievably impressive. Twofold question. What have you learned from Chris and what do you think Chris has learned from you? Yeah, I guess firstly, I just feel so fortunate to have such an extraordinary life partner. And Chris and I met later on in life. So for all of you out there that are single, hold on, find that right person. It makes such a big difference to, to life overall. And I, I learned something from Chris every day. You know, he is probably one of the kindest, most compassionate human beings I've ever met. But if I had to choose um, one thing, I'd say belief. When Chris first had his accident, he could have stopped. He could stop skiing and he got back and he started mono skiing and he believed that he could become the best mono skier in the world. And he became the best mono skier in the world. And he medaled multiple times in multiple Olympics. And he also did summer Olympics and winter Olympics. And he'd kill me right now if he knew I was bragging on him, but I'm, I'm going to anyway. <laughs> and then he also believed that he could climb Kilimanjaro. His parents, everyone told him he was crazy. And, and he built this hand cycle. And one revolution at a time, he climbed Kilimanjaro and got to the top. And I think what Chris has given me and what I've learned from him is belief in myself. And he believes that I can do anything. And that's helped me build my own confidence and believe that I can do anything. So I'd probably say belief. I don't know how much I've taught to him. One thing probably has been perseverance. I never give up. I will take something, keep on fighting and fighting for it. And also joy and silliness. He bought me a disco ball the other day for my birthday. I'm COVID now on the weekends. We have a private disco party here with the dog. And, you know, it's just about how do you create those moments of joy and lightness and fun in life. And so hopefully I, I've brought that to him. Wonderful. So, Gene, before we, we jump into your Penn State experience, we'll go there in a moment. We loved hearing about the amazing work that you've done in your career and, and that you're still doing today with Virgin Unite. But also there's other organizations out there that our listeners and Penn State alums could get involved with. Why should they consider Virgin Unite? And then for anyone who wants to get involved, how can they do so? How can they reach out and lend to the cause? First thing I just say to everyone who's listening right now is do something. I don't care what you do, do something. The world right now needs all of us to step up and stand up and really drive positive change. And there's so many great frontline organizations. This author, Casey Gerald, I asked him one time how he kept going and he said to me, be the fire. And always when people are asking what they should do, it's about finding what is that fire in your belly. And from a Virgin Unite perspective, 
one of the things we get really excited about is how do we connect people to frontline leaders who are tackling some of the toughest issues in the world. So you can hop on our website, look at some of the frontline leaders we work with. I'm happy to have conversations with people and help point them in the right direction of where they want to head. There's also the B team, B lab to help you change your business. Just do something. Again, businesses right now and human beings have such an opportunity. I think the other I think outcome of the pandemic that has been one light of hope has been that people are starting to realize that our systems are broken, that things need to change. And so there's this real opportunity for all of us to be those architects of the future and how we create new systems. Fantastic. Love it. Everyone's got to find that cause, that passion and go out and do it. So now we're going to put you in the lion's den, which is a segment dedicated to your time at Penn State. So, Gene, you alluded to it early on, how Penn State, I guess, was the career fair that helped you land your first job out of school. But aside from that, how, looking back on your time at Penn State, how did it prepare you for your career and all of these amazing professional endeavors that you've done? I think top of the list are the incredible friends and community I made at Penn State. And for any students listening to this, that's one of the things you should put your focus on. I, I still have those friends in my life today. I know they have my back, I have their back. They also push me to be a better person. So I'd say that's probably number one. I think number two is the values at Penn State. Right now we're doing monthly calls. I used to live in East Halls and Penny Packer. I have this extraordinary group of friends from East Halls and we're doing monthly calls right now. And every time I get on the phone with them, it feels like this warm embrace of kindness and love. And I think embedded in Penn State, uh, people that I meet from Penn State, there's just this core set of values that folks have. So I think that's another thing that's really done me in good stead over my life. And I think the other thing is this breadth of learning and opportunity, but also practical learning. I'll never forget this professor, Dr. Grover, who gave me a chance to do a research project in State College and hands-on practical research that helped me understand what work was all about. And he was a great mentor for me. And I had so many great mentors at Penn State. And Smeal, I can't say enough great things about Smeal right now. The work that they're doing around creating this hub for businesses to look at sustainability for Dean Whiteman is just extraordinary leader. And really living those values of how we can make business a force for good. And so I feel very blessed that I had, was grounded with those when I went to Penn State. Fantastic. Toughest question of the entire podcast, favorite Penn State memory? So there's lots of them, but one probably that's not that exciting. I'm sorry, this isn't going to be a very exciting answer. I'll tell you two, but one is the is just simply with those friends across East Halls, going to dinner every night, laughing, being silly together. I will never forget those moments. And uh, I hold those moments in my heart all the time. But I, if I would have to say one that really stood out and changed me forever, it was doing a semester abroad in London. And I went to study global economic theory for the semester for the summer in Oxford. And that group of friends, that experience just radically shifted who I was. I had I think I'd been to Mexico and I'd never been out of the States beyond that before I did this semester, this summer semester. So for any students listening to this, I'd urge you to take one of those opportunities if they come forward because it changed who I am. I would never ever have had the global experiences that I've had without that semester abroad, giving me that taste of what it was like to live abroad. And just that, I guess that spark of curiosity and wanting to learn more about other cultures and about other peoples. And it's, uh, it's something that I've held dear in my life. 
100%. And you're spot on, too, in terms of the people. Ross and I are, are friends now 21 years, and we met in East Halls as well, McKean. We talk about Penn State as a place, but it's really Penn State, the people that makes this university so special. Absolutely. And I'm so impressed by your friendship. You know, seeing what you've done and how you're celebrating other Penn Staters is just extraordinary. And at the end of the day, those are the only things that matter are these relationships and these friendships that we build in our lives. Nothing else matters as much as those. And Penn State was just, I feel so blessed and so lucky that I was able to build so many friendships out of my years there. Couldn't agree more. Gene, if you could go back and visit with yourself as an 18-year-old freshman entering Penn State, what advice would you share with yourself? I think the first thing is I would say, don't be afraid to take detours. Everyone wants to put you on this path and you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to, and just don't listen to it. Just take it away and just follow your heart and follow the detours. The detours are the things in my life that have brought me the most richness and helped me understand who I am, shine a mirror on and who I am and what I'm about. So that's number one. Number two is never ever lose your sense of curiosity and make sure you don't silo who you hang out with. One of the most profound conversations I had last year was with two people who were radically different, Professor Cornell West and Professor Robert George unbelievable opposites ends of the spectrum, politically, policy-wise, everything you can imagine. But they had this deep friendship. And at the end of that conversation, they turned to me and they said, go out and find a friend that unsettles you. And that's something that's stuck in my brain. So I would say to my 18-year-old self, find friends that unsettle you, find people that are different than you, and make sure you keep and carry those people in your life. And then I would be amiss not to channel my husband and, and I would say to any 18 year old girl, have belief that you can do anything because you really can do anything and make sure that you build those friendships while you're at Penn State that are going to help you carry through life to do anything you want. Amazing. So many great nuggets of advice right there. Along the advice lines, when you do find someone is considering college, there's obviously so many great colleges out there and there are considering Penn State, what do you tell them? I'd probably come right back at, I think your words, Jared or Ross, I can't remember who just said it, of wisdom are the best, is that you're coming to not just a university, you're coming to a community. And that community will be there with you the rest of your life. That will be an alumni community that will help guide you. That will be people that you can pick up the phone and get support and help you along your way. And I also think one of the beauties of Penn State is that it's breadth of experience, breadth of degrees, is just extraordinary. So whilst you're there, make sure you dabble in different classes, make sure you tap in. And it, I don't think there's many universities that can give you that breath. And I think the last thing is it's just good people. Again, I, I remember my time at, at Penn State of really good people and who wouldn't want to spend four years in university with really great people. Absolutely. Aside from the friends that, that you've made during your time at Penn State and, and remaining in touch with them, how else do you feel connected to the university these days? So I'm super lucky that we're doing these monthly calls with my friends, which has generated this enthusiasm for Penn State again. But I'm also really lucky that I was invited on the visitors board at SMEAL. And again, I can't say enough about respect for Dean Whiteman, what he's doing there. And also, I didn't know a lot of the people um, that are on this visitors board during my time at Penn State. So it's been this extraordinary opportunity to see these great leaders all over the world 
that came through Penn State. And so that's been a really beautiful learning opportunity for me. They come from all different backgrounds, all different types of businesses. And it's also been super heartwarming to see how focused they are in business as a force for good and looking at sustainability, looking at how we build um, morality and ethics in companies. And so that's kept me and made me even closer to Penn State and watching Eric and the work that he's doing in this new Center for Sustainability, again, has made me want to connect even more deeply with Penn State. We've got some of the students that he's working with coming to the 100% Human at Work Network that we've created, looking at how we can, in a couple months' time, I've got Jochen Zeitz, who's the CEO of Harley-Davidson, coming with Aaron from Interface to do a talk with Penn State SMEAL alumni. So there's all these really beautiful that connections that have started through this visitors board that has just been a real honor to serve on. Fantastic. Gene, this has been an amazing 45 minutes. You are a true inspiration. And I think what's so special about you is not only the work that you've done and the impact that you do and you continue to do every day, but you make people want to be better. And there's not many people out there that can inspire you to go out and inspire us to go out and be the change. And that to me is just an amazing gift that you have. And thank you for not only sharing that gift with us and with our listeners, but really inspiring us to make a, a bigger difference in the world. And there's immense amount of pride that we have just speaking with you, but an immense amount of pride that you're also a Penn Stater and we wish you continued success. We will be a fan of yours for life and we know you will continue to do great things and, and we look forward to being part of that journey. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, Ross. And just thanks right back at you. What you're doing with this podcast and giving people voices out there is making a big difference in the world. And so a massive thanks to both of you, because I know this is probably not an easy thing to do. You're probably doing it in spare time on weekends, in nights. And so thanks. Thanks for doing that and lifting people's voices. Thank you. And we always end with, we are Penn State. <laughs> Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoyed this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.